When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Hello, wonderful Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners. This week, we have something a little different for you. As you know, over the last 11 seasons, we here at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text have talked about the house elves in the Harry Potter series. We've talked about how we can read it as an analogy for all kinds of injustices in our contemporary world. We've especially celebrated Hermione's vigilance in trying to oppose the house elf system. But we've also had a lot of you ask us to dig deeper. Well, it turns out that our friends at Witch Please, Marcel Cosman and Hannah McGregor, have already taken a pretty extensive look at the way house elves function as metaphor in the series and the limits of their characterization in the novels. And Coach, don't forget about Coach, the wonderful Hannah Rehack. Uh, Hannah Rehack. I never forget about Hannah Rehack. I love her. So this week, we're going to share their episode, which pleases episode on house elves with you, because we hope that it will either satiate Or pique your interest in the beloved and complicated characters like Dobby and Winky and Creature. If you've ever questioned not the fact of Hermione's activism with Spew, but the manner in which she does it, or the way that Winky resists her own freedom, or the depths of Dobby's gratitude to Harry and Ron and his friends, then this episode is for you. We hope that you enjoy it. Here's an episode of Witch Please about the house elves. Thank you. 
Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And Hannah, since this episode is going up on December 27th, which is smack dab in the middle of the holidays, I want to talk about seasonal treats in the sorting chat. Mm. Marcel, you know I love talking about seasonal treats. Marcel, when is Hanukkah this year? What are the dates? Uh, nobody knows. <laughs> no one ever knows. Hanukkah arrives unbidden in the night. The first night is sundown on December 18th. Thank you, Coach. Coach, you're the only Jew in the world who knows when Hanukkah starts. <laughs> yeah, every year one special Jew is chosen who's gifted the knowledge of when Hanukkah <laughs> begins. And then it's their job to tell everyone else. And this year it's Coach. Congratulations, Coach. It's not the chosen people. It's the chosen person. <laughs> and it's Coach. That's also Coach's joke. I ask because my favorite vegan donut place in Vancouver does jelly donuts just for Hanukkah. Sufkenyut. And I, I say it again. <laughs> I've never had one, but I believe that it's pronounced Sufkenyut. Sufkenyut. Incredible. Well, I'll eat six for you. Because even though I am not Jewish, that is one of my favorite holiday treats. I just love that it's like, hey, everybody, it's Hanukkah, eat a jelly donut. And I'm like, okay. I mean, Jews are very good at food, like very good at YOLO, first of all. And so all of the food is very like rich and delicious. So, you know, add a holiday where we celebrate the miracle of oil and oh, yeah. you've got... <laughs> oh, yeah. I might have a latka party, too. Latkas are so good. So there you go. I'll be celebrating Hanukkah <laughs> with treats. What are your What are your favorite holiday treats? I love latkes and applesauce. Like I said, I've never had a Jewish jelly donut. <laughs> probably, I've probably had... <laughs> A goyish. goyish I've probably donut. had goyish jelly donuts before, <laughs> but never a Jewish jelly donut. I got to say, my truly my very favorite is my. Well, you know, we had this conversation. I think in our previous recording, we talked about gingerbread and oh, yeah. how much we both love gingerbread. And so I got to go back to. We've got really one track minds, huh? Well, listen, it's the time of year. <laughs> I'm sorry, does somebody have something else they want us to talk about in the sorting chat? Something other than delicious treats? Listen, you here fascist? are the things I've got. Delicious treats and updates on how my renovation is going. I'm promising you one of those <laughs> topics is more interesting than the other. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, gingerbread, but specifically my grandma's gingerbread. Are you going to receive that gingerbread directly from your grandma this year? I am going to see my grandma if that's what you are if that's what you are asking. Uh -huh. um, and uh, and she does usually make one batch of gluten-free gingerbread cookies just for me. And I am a real bitch about it and I don't share with anybody. Um so I got my fingers crossed. My my longing for this year is to have an oven by Christmas because I would you really have an I don't have a kitchen myself. I camp in my apartment. So if I'm very good, if I'm very good, maybe Santa will bring me an oven and in that oven I will bake cookies. Oh, my God. Hannah, you've been very good. And if Santa doesn't bring you an oven, Santa's a fascist douchebag. Okay. <laughs> 
Speaking of holiday treats, we have a very special treat today. A guest! But, you know, before we can unwrap our presents, we need to do a little housekeeping, which is what we're going to do in revision. Now, we are talking today about house elves, which is a topic we have been touching on for, like, the whole podcast, <laughs> like, as soon as house elves were introduced, because they're such a, like, complicated, problematic, rich topic of discussion. Fraught. Fraught, one might say. So we, you know, we've been circling the topic for a while now. Most notably, we talked about house elves in our episode on critical race theory with our special guest, Kay Alexandra, who read the house elves as racialized and enslaved figures. In that episode, we argued that a key intervention offered by critical race studies is its focus on how racism is systemic and institutionalized. What that means is that racism is more likely to be embedded in cultural norms, laws, housing policies, budget decisions, zoning, etc., than necessarily to be articulated overtly as a belief or principle. So in that context, we can see how the embedding of house elves literally in institutions like Hogwarts naturalizes their role there to the point that most wizards seem to genuinely believe that freedom would make the elves unhappy. We also talked about the house elves in our episode on hauntology with Lydia Nicole. In that discussion, Lydia named the house elves as an absent presence that haunts the halls of Hogwarts, comparing them to the absent presences of enslaved people in historical photography. And of course, we've taken a special interest in creature, not only via our extremely important segment creature report, but also in our discussion of motherhood with Aaron Wunker. We noted the way creature participates in what Aaron called domestic worldmaking, alongside the impossibility of fully understanding the cultural role of motherhood without considering it in relation to race, with house elves, of course, being a central example in the books. Plus, in our very last episode about sentimentality, we talked about the sentimental tropes at work in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows and how they resonate with Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. So Stowe, in that novel, uses sympathetic identification with enslaved characters to quote-unquote humanize them by depicting them as feeling deeply. In a literary move that is strikingly similar to how this book humanizes Creature by emphasizing his love for Regulus Black, specifically. And of course, lucky for our heroes, once humanized, Creature actually wants to serve them more than he did before. Mm, that seems kind of fucked up, doesn't it? And it really does. And I think it's worth discussing why. And in order to mm -hmm. understand why, I think we might need some expert help. Lucky for us, we have an expert here with us today. Would you like to meet her? On behalf of me and everybody listening, I really would. You know, there's something magical about this time of year when we somehow transform the longest nights into bright gatherings. And speaking of magical transformations... It's time for Transfiguration class. That was a beautiful intro, Hannah. Oh my god, thank you. It was just actually genuine, which is never the case with my intros. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, pronouns she, her. 
Jessica is an associate professor in the Department of History at Johns Hopkins University and a fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Studies at Harvard University. She is also the director of Life Code, Digital Humanities Against Enclosure. Jessica is a historian of Atlantic slavery and the Atlantic African diaspora. She is the author of Wicked Flesh, Black Women, Intimacy, and Freedom in the Atlantic World, published with University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020, which won so many prizes that I can't even list them here. And of course, she used to babysit Coach. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. really important addition to the bio. I think we can all agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I assume that that's just part of your bio, Jessica. Absolutely. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It's how how I've made my way. Amazing. Can we begin by hearing a little bit about your relationship to the Harry Potter series? Like, these are, one presumes, books you have read. Are they, were you a fan as a kid? So I um, was very much a fan. I was a huge fan and remain a huge fan of the books, even if I have not so fan, fan-like fan feelings about the author now. But yes, read them all. Actually was late to reading the books, was maniacally addicted to the movies. My um, younger sister, Kristen Iris Johnson, who Coach also knows, um, and who has now gone on to do... Um, genre fiction as well. Um, she right now has a has a show on All Black um, Network called Wicked City. She was the one who really convinced me like, no, you really have to read the books. There's something in the books that is richer and deeper and a little darker when you actually start mm-hmm. reading the, <laughs> the actual text than mm-hmm. the movies, which I think are, you know, a really, you know, a really fun ride um, and have all kinds of really interesting elements. But yeah, and the thing, yeah, the there are many things that are in the books that I'm like, oh, this is, this is a little different. And that relate to thinking about race, thinking about even slavery, the house elves, definitely. Um, that was one of the most obvious ones, the questions of blood and, um, mm-hmm. and also just uh, rise of fascism. There are some really blatant things in the books that are not as clear in movies. But once you read the books and watch the movies, it's like, okay, I see exactly where the the shadow of this is. Do you identify with a particular house? I have taken those Harry Potter tests that you circulate <laughs> on the Facebook and on the socials. <laughs> and I, I sadly would usually end up in some combination of Ravenclaw and Slytherin, which I'm not sure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I always like wonder, like, why is this here? <laughs> I love that Slytherin is an option on the quizzes. It's always like, oh, oh, cool! I've sorted into the fascists. Yeah, like, sure, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and I get, you know, some aspects, some like rampant ambition there, you know, some aggressive like antisocial behavior. Uh, you know, maybe like a practical joke that's fatal. Like, you know, okay. <laughs> Sure, you know, can see how some of that is there. You know, who hasn't killed a man or two in their lives? Oops, so sorry. (laughs) It was funny. In my defense, it was funny. I do have a theory that, like, a lot of academics, I think, lie at the Ravenclaw-Slytherin intersection. I think that is a very common intersection in academia. Because you got to be bookish, but you also need to be a little cutthroat. You have to be a little cutthroat. So, Jessica... Your research focuses on Black diasporic freedom struggles. So why don't we start by talking about the concept of the diaspora and why it's so central to the histories you study? 
So I am very, very much interested in um, the time period that includes the period of slavery. And in coming to that history, I was very interested and remain deeply invested in um, Black life. So how are people of African descent, Africans and people of African descent, really grappling with this world that is being created around them, um, that they're part of, but also you know part of macro processes that are well beyond the home that they live in, the town they live in, the nation, all of that. And for me, that work really required a deep investment in histories of the African continent, polities on the continent, um, and thinking about the ways that African history has to be part of the diaspora history. African history has to be part of the history of Black peoples across the Americas. And this is why I think without a deep grounding um, or considered it grounding and understanding of African experiences across the continent of the different polities and their um, the different nations and their politics, their structure, their economics, the reasons and rationales by which they engage or do not engage each other, as well as Europeans that come to trade for all kinds of things, for gold, for cotton, for, for Africans as well, then we end up with a kind of history of Black people in the Americas as like, oh, okay, you arrived as enslaved. And then there's no kind of sense of, oh, actually, people were people before they were embarked on slave ships. They were people with rich and complex histories, with cosmologies that predated their time in the hold of the ship, with politics and a different understanding of the world at times, not always, but at times, that predates, you know, the Enlightenment that predates European ways of thinking, Western modes of thinking. So having um, that as a center really reshapes how you understand the histories of, of the Americas. And that can be really transformative um, for folks and can be a, a, a gateway drug to um, other kinds of um, political consciousness and um, potential uh, political organizing, I hope. I, I'm always happy if people just learn the history, but I also have like an ulterior motive of like, so where else might you go with this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what community organizing would you like to do? Let's, you know, let's get you connected and, and get you exposed to, uh, you know, changing the entire world. They're like, oh, history. I hope this radicalizes you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just a little whisper. Just a little whisper. And you know, maybe that's the Slytherin in me. It's just like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a class. It's just history. It's just a spell. But actually, <laughs> Slytherins are absolutely interested in revolution. It's just unfortunate that the revolution that they were particularly invested in was fascist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, can we take a step back? And just in case there's anybody listening right now who's like, I don't know the word diaspora. What is that? It's a great idea, Hannah. So diaspora is a term that at its heart really means um, dispersal, right? And is usually used in regards to the forced dispersal of a people. So it is used in relation to, uh, often relations into uh, Jewish diasporas as being forcibly dispersed in a whole host of directions, um, has very much been taken up by folks who are thinking about the forced migration and the forced um, kidnapping and trafficking of Africans from across the continent. Um, into the Americas, but it's using it's also used in, in other capacities to describe the for, describe forced movement broadly. 
And that force piece, I think, is really important because I think sometimes it can be used to just sort of describe, yes, we're just moving around. That's more migration, right? That doesn't capture the part of the movement where you are moving because you have no choices, because of austerity, um, because of land enclosure, because of climate catastrophe that, you know, at this point we realize is, you know, so much man-made and so much industry made by petrochemical companies and other things. Or you're moving because you are literally being kidnapped <laughs> and trafficked, you know, to other parts of the world. And and so there's that force piece, I think, is really important when we're thinking about diaspora. So it is a word that applies across many different peoples that have found themselves in new homelands um, and have found themselves having to make new homelands in, in new hostlands. But in this instance, when I'm talking about diaspora, I am specifically thinking about um, the African diaspora, and um, which is global, which spans, you know, so much time and space. I'm thinking about the African diaspora as it was being created between the 1440s and the 1880s, which is that period of enslavement. So 1441 is the first um, ship that is of of Africans. I think it's like 235 um, African women, children, and men who are trafficked from West Africa, arguably Mauritania or Senegal. I think the kind of debate is is still debating, um, but our traffic to Lisbon. So that's that very first ship of this era. And then 1888 is um, the general emancipation in um, in Brazil. Yeah. And so that that thinking of if we're talking about diaspora, we actually need to think seriously about where people have come from, not just where they where they ended up, which is, I think, such a vital intervention into the way a lot of stories about minoritized subjects are told, which which do tend to sort of fixate on the experience of what it is like to be in the place that you are now in, and less of that sort of historicizing of, of what have you brought with you. Totally. I mean, um, I usually go by scholar Kim Butler, who is a Brazilianist, African diaspora scholar, um, her definition of diaspora when I'm thinking about it in practice. Um, so her definition is um, diasporas have five parts. One is the condition, like, what is creating the conditions of dispersal. There's the homeland, which is two. Three is the host land for our relations with that community in where, where they land. But then five is relations with that community to themselves in other host lands. And so um, one of the reasons I find that such an interesting set of frameworks, like one, two, three, four, five, is that sometimes we forget that there is the the sort of origin point and then there's where folks land. But then there's also like, because it's diaspora, it does require more than one place. So I guess that's also part of the definition I should clarify, which is that a diaspora is different from migration in that you're not just one group going from point A to B, you're one group going from point A to B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, And so that relationship between, you know, the folks who end up in point B and folks who end up in point C or point F, those actually become really interesting um, relationships. And that's what you have. And um, when you're talking about the African diaspora, you're talking folks who have an origin point in the continent, but who end up in Cuba, in the DR, in what becomes the United States, in Brazil, and have, you know, sometimes very different relationships, not just to each other, but to where they landed, the empires that have enslaved them and the communities that they have to build and rebuild in those places. So it's very complicated. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Historicize, historicize, it's always time to historicize. So we've talked in previous episodes about this concept of of absent presence. And in our episode about critical archival studies, the way that archives like strategically and intentionally erase some voices. So I'm really curious to hear more about how you work with archives in order to understand the experiences of people like enslaved people and Black women in particular, whose own voices have rarely been archived in these histories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is a very careful kind of work trying to even just spot Black women in the archives in this time period. Um, This is a time period where the texts that are available are themselves limited because this is still, you know, this early, we'll just call it the early modern era to kind of bracket that, you know, that centuries that I just mentioned. In the early modern era, most people are not actually reading and writing. Like the, think of like the masses, masses are not reading and writing and then saying, hey, let me save my diary in some library, in Benjamin Franklin's library, that would be really great. You know, they're, um, the traditions are oral, the conversations are very oral, um, music, dance, all of these things. Now, these are things that now we're thinking about how to archive, but at that time, not. So when you think about who has the privilege and the um, the economic, you know, ability to, you know, pay for a pen and paper, to think about writing it down, to imagine that they 
have something that, you know, have a place that somebody will, you know, save this for posterity. You're talking about a particular group of folks. Um, initially, very much you're talking about the nobility. You're talking about a, a kind of um, upper middle class gentry. You're talking about um, when you call to talking about numbers and figures, you're talking about folks who are, you know, business people, traders, investors, that kind of thing. And these are not people who are often of African descent. There are some. But they are, in the grand scheme of this moment, most of them are European. Um, they're in this world of this, um, what we describe as the Atlantic world. So North America, South America, Europe, African continent. They're in this world in part because they are part of a colonizing project. They are, you know, the sons of nobles who own plantations, who end up, you know, somewhere in Jamaica having to run the plantation. They are overseeing other plantations, they're ship builders, they're ship captains, they're surgeons who are, you know, also navigating this world of, you know, strange health care and all of that. So these are not folks who are African. Again, in this particular world, you actually have a very strong um, literate culture in particularly within West Africa, um, because Islam, um, you know, requires and demands particular kinds of um, literacy um, and writing ability in order to move forward in, in, in the faith. So that's not to say that the continent itself doesn't have a writing culture, it actually very much does. But in this early modern space, that's not necessarily the case. Um, those who are enslaved, even those who are able to read and write, um, Jabba and Solomon is actually a really good example um, who ends up finding his way back they are not given access to those materials. And so you have what is brought down to us because of who is able to create textual material, but also then, you know, find archives to put it in is biased. It's just as biased. Like we can play objectivity games, but <laughs> what we have available to us <laughs> is from the perspective of mostly white men, often also white women, some um, folks who are invested in some way in the colonizing project and the imperial project, and who have, at best, complicated relationships to things like slavery, things like indigenous genocide. And so if that's a perspective we have already, reading into that for what are the experiences of, of African women and women of African descent is difficult, and reading deeper into the what is available to find where the voices of Black women might be speaking for themselves or writing their own experiences is also really hard. And so we have, you know, some kind, some sets of documentation that, you know, have been cleaved to and and mined and need to continue to be mined. So we have, you know, um, 19th century slave narratives like Harriet Jacobs, um, Sojourner Truth dictated hers. Um, Harriet Tubman also told her story often, both on the lecture circuit, but also, you know, had it written down. So we have those kinds of things. We also have court documents where enslaved people are taking their owners to court in order to secure freedom, demanding their um, their rights according to the Code Noir, which is one of the, you know, for as an example, which is one of the Black codes um, issued by the French Empire, um, where they could be litigious. Africans were incredibly litigious in the Americas, worked very, very hard to place themselves before and in front of people in authority in order to be able to make their claims for, you know, all kinds of things. If they killed their owner, they're making their claims for 
are like, no, it was actually justified. If they stole food, you know, like same thing, you know, like dancing, like all kinds of stuff. And not not just in their own defense, but like saying like, no, 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 I have a right to do this. I have a right to freedom. I have a right to, um, you know, I have a right to certain rations because of the code noir or because of whatever uh, police codes or black codes are operating. Um, And so those are the kind of documents where, um, where we're able to glean from those, some of the experiences, but they're not complete, which means being true to and thinking about, okay, what might be missing is a very deliberate practice and methodology. Um, In the book, one of the things I talk about is the null value, which is a way of sort of thinking about and holding space for what is missing in the register, in the census, in the archive, and imagining what the possibilities might be there, both um, violent and destructive, but also possibilities of resistance and marinage on the part of enslaved people. Um, where are enslaved people potentially trying to avoid being written down? Um, because, you know, the act of, of being caught often attended their appearance in, in the archive and in documents. So you have, um, you also have those kinds of aspects of, um, of, uh, material, um, research to, to be thinking through as well. Jessica, for for me and also listeners who might not know, could you also define what marinage is? I'd be happy to. Yes. Um, so marinage is a word that um, was used at the time and that scholars now use to describe running away. Uh, and so that might be running away for a time, which is also the word for that is also um, truancy, particularly in the English speaking um, colonies. But marinage, a petite marinage is the word that is used to say, oh, this person is running away maybe for a time and um, and may come back. And then um, there's a word on grandma which is basically you have run away for weeks, maybe months at a time. Maybe you are never going to be found. Marinage is also a word that um, describes uh, the communities that um, where they were able to build like whole palisaded, you know, enforced communities of runaways, um, maroon communities. Uh, that word also describes those communities as a whole. So Suriname, Jamaica, you know, like uh, communities in the Dismal Swamp of, of the United States in um, the Cypress Swamps of Louisiana, like being able to kind of come together as a band of runaways was also a practice uh, where it was possible. Yeah. Okay. This does actually tie in really well to our next question. So in our last episode on sentimentality, we talked about this like popular narrative that Harriet Beecher Stowe ended slavery by writing a sad book about it and how that erases the actual organizing of actual enslaved people. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the forms that freedom struggles took in the Black diaspora? I absolutely can. This actually does segue really well because the maroon um, colony that I didn't mention was actually the northern United States, especially after um, the um, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Uh, we could actually think of, and I think um, Stephen Hahn, scholar Stephen Hahn actually makes this claim. We can actually think of like the northern U.S., like that above the Mason-Dixon line as you know, a protected space for runaways. Um, and that's to say that, yeah, like, I mean, um, before, uh, you know, and, and you know, places that led slavery long after Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote <laughs> Tom's Cabin, um, you absolutely had enslaved people. They, they were the ones who really pushed the lever as far as um, securing, um, securing freedom. So some of the ways absolutely looked like um, running away, right? You know, running away, even if for a time is something that 
push the boundaries of, of slave owner power, of push the boundaries of even like the geography of the plantation, like transgressing that was very much a radical act. Um, scholar Stephanie Camps um, um, talks about the rival geography that, you know, like that that was actually really important and a huge affront. That's why there were laws made about it. That's why you can be hamstrung and be branded as a result of that. Like, and that's another thing, like when we think about the punishments that are being offered, like we actually can't be light about, um, you know, like things that might seem small, like, oh, they gathered for dancing. That wasn't really resistance. No, they could be killed for that. And we, there are people in the archive who were killed for just gathering to dance. And so, you know, like you have um, you have things like that. You have folks who, you know, reclaim their time and their labor as a result of of gathering, as a result of um, um, creating gardening spaces and um, selling their own goods and creating some kind of economic space for themselves, which becomes a gateway drug to saving up money for your own self-purchase. Right. So like you have these you know, step by step by step. Um, you had folks who raised um, arms, you know, full arms, like full attacks on slavery, um, the Stoner Rebellion. Um, you have Nat Turner's revolt. Um, you have the 1811 slave revolt in Louisiana, like so many. And, and this is just like, you know, the, what becomes the United States. Um, you have so many, so many instances of those and and many that were marked as, you know, just, con, you know, quote unquote, just conspiracies, which is how um, sl slave owners and colonial officials would try and like, you know, back away from the very real threat of enslaved Africans in their midst rising up. Um, so in every way possible in a thousand ways that we have yet to even kind of really kind of conceptualize and theorize um enslaved people and free people of African descent fought against uh, fought against slavery and and so you know I think it's important to think about you know um Uncle Tom's Cabin and Harriet Beecher Stowe and the print culture that's generated around this moment of organizing in the late um in the latter part of the antebellum era it's absolutely important Frederick Douglass knew the power of the pen he wrote multiple autobiographies um Sojourner Truth knew the power of this of the lecture circuit she would sell um photographs of herself that said I sell the um I I I sell the, uh, the shadow to you know um to show the substance right like she you know very much, you know, was clear that, you know, we need to talk about this. We need to let people know what is happening. We can't let up, right? Um, but it is also the case that that had to coincide with armed revolt. It had to coincide with the remapping of, of time and space that, you know, truancy allowed that like, oh, if I go this far, this is where the dogs won't catch me. If I go this far, this is where the river is. Like, that all of these were part of an education of resistance and an education of radical radicalism that helped lead to uh, the Civil War. Um, it just, you know, period. So enslaved people freed themselves. <laughs> sort of the long version of this through their own acts of resistance. And, um, and, you know, great to have texts like Uncle Tom's Cabin that generated a kind of sentiment. And that's important, but the actual act of doing that freedom lands in the hands of, of Black people. In Wicked Flesh, you refer to Black women practicing freedom even when they could not call themselves free. And that that has really sort of struck me, this idea of like, yeah, okay, there are these really important acts of like literally freeing yourself in a legal sense. And then there are, as you say, these practices of gathering, dancing, you know, these other things that fall outside of a simple binary of free versus enslaved. Um, and that complicate that binary as being, you know, like an off on switch, either you're enslaved or you're free and there's nothing in between. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that 
was always interesting to me in how we how academics in some ways have written about slavery is that there is the enslaved person and then they get a document that says they're free and now they're the free person and hooray and you know yes absolutely there is so much that leads up to um securing that document which most people even in you know the even after their they've petitioned even after they've taken their owner to court or appeared in you know before whoever official or appeared in the will there's still no guarantee and not always even documentation that they secure the document that says they're free so there's also that aspect but yes like you know the things you have to go through in order to just get the kind of legal writ of emancipation and manumission huge right? But also like you are still living in a world in which slavery exists, in which the structures of the law do not allow for Black people to have any equal status with, with white people in this world. Um, and that's <laughs> that's no access to suffrage. That's no access, like the citizenship laws, the suffrage laws, like the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, those exist because of the Civil War. Citizenship was not just granted, period, carte blanche, um, until then, until that moment. Um, suffrage was a thing that was propertied um, white and male. Um, and remained male until you know the 1920s, but like was still very much um, a particular elite status um, uh, available uh, option. It was available to those of elite status, and so you know, like in living in this world in which the forces of institutions, the law, uh, uh, elected institutions, um, economic institutions, investors, credit, all of that is arrayed against you. That world was created over this long time period. And that world was not going to be dismantled by a single act of emancipation. That said, every single act of emancipation was one brick out of that edifice, right? And that's really, really important to remember. And it has to be both, right? It can't be like, yes, I, you know, like, you know, the, you know, this group of folks, this family was able to secure freedom and therefore, you know, like that is, you know, the success that we want to have. Well, what does that success mean when, um, you know, Phyllis Whitley is able to secure freedom, but then, you know, has to kind of, you know, is is forced to to be employed um, essentially at, among other things as a domestic when she this like amazingly lettered, literate um, woman at this point and ends up, you know, dying in poverty, ill, in part because of, you know, access to housing, access to medical care, ac- things that sound really familiar today, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, <laughs> but are still mm-hmm. at, at play then, right? And so it's important to see like, okay, what kind of world that is slavery created um, and to see all of the different kinds of institutions that are created to buttress bondage. And then to remember that free people are entering into that world. They're not entering into the world and the freedoms of white citizenship. And that's part of the reason why, even if you ran away um, across Mason-Dixon line or ran away all the way up to Canada, you are still understanding your lot as the same lot as um, as enslaved people, especially at least in the U.S. context, and that's a that's a that's a kind of kinship and also a political understanding, political consciousness of here are the stakes, right? And the stakes don't change now that I've had access to manumission. Um, they may be ameliorated a little bit. Um, they may be ameliorated a lot, but 
I am still being seen in this kind of second class positioning, third, fourth class positioning. And that means there's more work to be done to truly have an abolitionist world, to truly abolish the institutions and the structures that were created out of slavery. I feel like that is such a beautiful place to segue into our next segment. Let's do it. Well, the unwrapping is done, which means that we finally get to play with our presents. And guess what we've got? Owls. <laughs> I wondered why all of the boxes had those holes in, like carved into them and feathers yeah. coming and out. And hooting. And hooting. Okay, so Jessica, my, my brain has been aflame the whole time you have been teaching us so many exciting things. And I wrote this note during our conversation. I wrote down, wait a minute, where do house elves come from? Like, is there a before, before their attachment to institutions? Like, Dobby is the only example we have of an after. I'm realizing I actually never applied that logic to... Um... <laughs> <laughs> this is a hard hitting this is a hard hitting podcast where we ask the tough questions i mean welcome to which please what we do is take a really serious theory and then we're like but what if we apply it to harry potter no but it's it is it's really interesting because it's one of the kind of it's one of those sort of backstories that is kind of whis not whispered about, but probably least hinted at, I feel like, <laughs> from the books. Because there's there's the house elves, there's the goblins, like goblins have this long history. Harry encounters this idea that goblins like didn't make treasures for humans. Exactly. They made them for themselves. And they've got their own culture and logics of ownership and all of this stuff that Harry's like, wait, you don't exist just to run the bank? No, actually, we have this whole, you know, grief with you guys because you guys took all of our things and, you know, have have sequestered them into the bank and we would like our sword back. And <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, house elves sort of kind of drop out of the bottom of that. If I remember correctly, that there's not really a clear origin story. And that's there's always nothing kind of, yeah, that's kind of weird things about them as a feature of this the world building right you know like that they sort of like harriet beecher Stowe <laughs> and 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 tom and eliza they have you know they they perform a function narratively discursively in the political consciousness even of the main characters but they kind of like it's like three quarters full of humanity and that like last piece ends up sort of missing and then that last piece includes like what is the origin story like how did you get here how does this dynamic happen so if we want to think about the harry potter novels as doing a similar kind of work to like to like a harriet beecher stowe where it's like a quote-unquote sympathetic white author who wants to make these othered and enslaved and marginalized people sympathetic to the audience, what are the things that we should be reading for that would that would signal to us like this is a limited and 
problematic approach to characterization. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to answer this, I think. <laughs> so, for example, there's creature, right? And the scene where he where we finally actually hear this is what happened with Regulus. This is what happened with the locket and, you know, there's, you know, the subtext of Regulus, you know, like really having like sensitive feelings for um for creature like actually caring about Uh, an elf which is like oh my gosh like how could that be and all of that is interesting but there's just this like there's this moment where where harry uh after he after they hear this story and they realize oh creature is devastated because he can't um he can't destroy the locket like that harry I, i forget what he offers him but he he basically makes a gesture of um he gives him something from black he gives him the fake locket he gives him the fake locket and creature just has this like oh my gosh thank you so much like it's just like a whole kind of meltdown of gratitude, right? Every time I come ac- encounter that that part of the of the narrative, I always go to in my head the stories from um, the antebellum period of of white people traveling throughout the South and saying, "Oh my gosh!" And the enslaved people are so um, they're so effusive and they're so thankful and they you know like they were so grateful that I gave them food or water or that I you know was you know I gave them a compliment and they just you know tears came to their eyes it was so meaningful to them and I'm like you know like what part of this is house elves like being hardwired as you know like I think the book tries to say especially through Hermione that they're hardwired for this kind of effusive gratitude and loyalty and all of that. And what part of that is them playing a game? You know, like what part of that is them, you know, masking? And some of this, you know, especially, you know, now knowing who Rowling is, like I'm probably, I, at the time I was probably giving her too much credit, but at the time I was also like thinking about, you know, there is, if we are informed by the practices of freedom, by praxis of resistance, by the ways that Black people throughout time and space have had to um, have one face in in public and code switch to have another face in their communities. Like, how is that happening potentially among households and within um, the dynamics they're having with each other? Like, what does Creature go back and do once he's able to kind of like have some quiet time by himself? Is he there talking shit about the Blacks? I don't know. You know, but I like to imagine that, you know, like there might be something there that is, you know, beyond sort of that that one note. Yeah, that sort of incredibly valuable question always of like these characters who we only ever see through Harry's perspective. What are they like off screen? What are they doing when Harry's not watching them? And also, how unreliably is Harry actually recounting to us the details of these interactions? Because we know he's an unreliable narrator and we know that he's not a particularly thoughtful observer of the complex politics of the wizarding world. So generally, we only get attention to those politics via Harry reporting other characters talking to him about them. So, you know, most of our sense of like, there is something wrong with the way that house elves are treated comes through Hermione's voice, for example. But we've got this one example of an elf who desperately wants to be free, and that is Dobby. And yet, we get a very strong sense that nobody else is on board so this this is a big question for me is like why do we have and let me put a star beside the word why why do we have one elf who desperately loves freedom and who uses that language over and over again right he says dobby is a free elf it is on his 
his tombstone, right? He is a free elf. That is the key thing about him. Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. And Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. And yet, he is surrounded by other elves who seem to have no desire for it. And, and the, the star beside why is sort of, you know, I'm interested in why within the within the logic of the series but i'm also interested in the sort of like narrative why like what are the narrative implications of creating this one character who represents freedom and then killing him that is always so wild to me that is always so wild to me like dobby is a free elf but he couldn't live as free you know ron hermione and harry in particular like they're sort of reactions to the house elves like th throughout the series like Hermione's whole campaign <laughs> to free the elves <laughs> it all gives in some ways and I, I don't know if this is intentional but it gives this kind of interesting window into some particularly like white liberal framings of you know what um right liberal imaginings of of black freedom and the role white liberals might play in that in that imagining right like you have you know like oh they don't want it they don't deserve it like ron is just kind of like over it right completely you have harry who was like i'm actually just confused and i'm new to this and i kind of want to help but also like i have my own plans of what i want to do <laughs> this is like the like you know the white marxist version it's like oh that that black freedom thing that seems really really important but also like class but late like but later i've got this later i'm busy like there's this whole other thing you know in your time the oh but also class is and then there's hermione who is you know like in a lot of ways is a bleeding heart is like i have just discovered that i'm the maligned of the wizarding world and also so are you house elves let us band together and so there's something really you know this i think this must be very sympathetic about about that for sure but also like she also is is very much oh no they're hardwired to be faithful they're hardwired to not be whole selves mm. at all points she's she's very much like no you don't you don't understand or i don't think this is in the seventh book i think this is, this is earlier like four or five where she's leaving clothing <laughs> around yeah. um to free them you know like a very kind of passive <laughs> intervention in in a you know slavery regime and also like you like you could potentially get them in a lot of trouble by just you know by them encountering those things do you think they don't know that they could be <laughs> in trouble for that that they could be punished for that um all of this to say like that dobby could not exist as a free elf in the world that is after revolution or after the end of fascism or after you know like that moment right of of of, of escaping um i was thinking about exactly that when you were talking about you know the sort of enslaved free binary and what it means to be sort of freed into a world in which the conditions of slavery continue to exist and 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 that is the context in which Dobby is free. Like Dobby is free in a world in which house elves are defined by their lack of desire, their desire for non-freedom. Like not even a lack of desire for freedom, but a desire for indentured servitude. Um, and so in that context, like how is he supposed to exist in that world? Even if we think about like what Dobby does once he has been freed is he goes to work at Hogwarts. So he has a, a kinder employer, but he's doing the same work. 
And when Hermione, like, talks to him about how much money he's making or how many days off he has, he's still like, whoa, 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 whoa. One day off a month is sufficient. I still obviously love labor. And labor here in particular, Mm. like for Mm -hmm. these, you know, like these wizards, like these are my wizards, right? Like, and yeah, and and this is a refrain you also see in, you know, white travelers representations or it's like, yeah, where they're talking to slave owners, plantation owners. And they're like, no, 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 my Negroes. No, no, they're okay. Like it's those over there that are the problem. Um, You see this written into law during the Haitian Revolution, where you have uh, officials in, you know, the British colonies um, in the U.S. um, and officials in what is still Spanish, like Louisiana, Florida. They're like, no, 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 no. Like, we'll keep our Africans here, our enslaved people, but those French Negroes, they can't come over here. Right. Like, so you also have those kinds of interesting um, distinctions. And and to read that through Dobby being like, no, 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 like these, this is great. Like, I love this. I don't know. I also think about like the ways that like this is, you know, in some ways, you know, very British world, um, a very British imperial world. Um, in the British Empire, you had the end of slavery, but you also had the long apprenticeship period. And so it wasn't, you know, even that freedom was not free. And to have, you know, like the free elf, you know, being, you know, so enthusiastic about essentially continued apprenticeship and continued second class citizenship. Um, and then to not be able to exist as free, like had to be killed off because there's not a narrative arc of a free elf in the world beyond that. Those are those are actually very aligned, right? Like, so the crisis of what to do with Black people after freedom was a thing that held up emancipation and then was resolved by saying, well, we'll just keep them in some kind of form of servitude until, you know, they seem to have proven themselves correct and um, proven themselves as adequate for equal citizenship. And that adequate for is a thing that just continues to be pushed further and further into the future um, in various kinds of ways. Um, so there's some aspects there that feel very like, okay, this comes out of a particular context of understanding who is worthy of um, freedom and what that freedom is, is meant to entail. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
while we're talking about these narratives and these ways of understanding the various representations of our house elves, what should we do with Hermione? Because canonically, she is white, but the the fandom has really identified with and claimed her as black and and so how does how does reading her as white or black um, shift the meaning of her activism in the series? I don't know. I'm sort of, uh, I get stuck because I, I also have so little faith that Rowling could do that justice. Hermione, to me, I, I put her so much in the box of like the abolitionist track, right? Like the 19th century abolitionist track. Like, you know, oh my gosh, the poor Negroes and they need our help. Like, what will we white people do? Um, like the fervence of her activism, her faith in something else being possible is so total. And her infantilization of the house elves is also so immense that the two very much uh, go together in the kind of like 19th century abolitionist schema. So her gender actually, I think, is really important there and her ability to embody that because of her, her feminist, her femininity, I think is really key. But I also think it's important that she is neutrally, in some sense, she's neutrally raised as white. I would love to see a Hermione that was like Black, Caribbean, African descent is also thinking about, you know, mudblood and the conversation also about race and phenotype and um, and one drop rules that could bring that into the conversation whenever the mudblood conversation. I know we're talking about house cells and, and so mudblood, but that's the thing. Like, so that's the thing that comes up, right? Like it's um, and we're talking about house cells, but at the same time, like a Hermione who is who is of African descent can't then look at being a mudblood and the conversation about mudblood in the being a mudblood in, in the wizarding world in the same way. Like it's for me, it's just impossible to disaggregate those. And I think that for a true, a character that's true to that story, true to that background, it would have to bring those together. And that then makes me imagine, well, then what are there other solidarities that could have been possible between a mudblood Hermione activist and um, house elves, like, are you then looking at their actions differently? Are you seeing that kind of like effusive embodied gratitude with the same sort of skepticism that I am? Like, are you wondering where they go to hang out, you know, when they're not here serving and where the real action is? Like, those are the kinds of things that I think that Hermione gets smarter and not smarter, like book smarter, but like smarter about like where the secrets and the silences might be. And, you know, that may or may not change the fundamentally thing, fundamental things she does with Harry and Ron, but it adds a kind of interesting texture to where and how she understands social relations lie in this world. Um, so I think it changes a lot, but I think it also means that we got to, that, that it's a rewriting of her that I think could be provocative and exciting. I remember Kay Alex in our episode with her pointing out that Hermione doesn't refer to the house elves as enslaved until after she's had that very frightening confrontation at the Quidditch World Cup where she sees this violence being done to muggles and Draco basically threatens her and says, like, you better watch out, Mudblood, like, we're coming for you. And she has this this very frightening encounter with the kind of violence that she is going to be subject to as a, a muggle-born wizard. And it's after that that she starts using the language of enslavement for the house elves. I have no 
desire to attribute any intentionality to Rowling doing that. But it is an interesting moment that does sort of offer this this potential reading of Hermione as somebody who is make, starting to make those links, who is making those latent links between the way in which she's being categorized within the wizarding world and the way that the house elves are being treated and what that means about the sort of larger structure of the wizarding world. And you know, she's 17 when the books end. So one can dream that maybe she goes to college, that she just returns to the the muggle world to be like, it's actually wild that wizards don't have any post-secondary education. So I'm just going to go and just learn more. Black wizard Hermione just going, going to like Howard University and just, you know, pledging. What would she pledge? Mm, I'll give her... Mm, is she a Delta? I mean, she does save the world. So... We can make her, I'm, I'm also a Delta, so we can make her, you can make her my soror. So Black Wizard Hermione, my future soror at Howard University. Yes, like absolutely. I can see the vision there. It also, you know, it, it, I was just sort of talking about the the class bros, the Marxist bros, but it also does bring in the concept of of class in an interesting way. So there is a Black, there is a, a world in which a Black Wizard Hermione, you know, does have to have that revelation and then is is effusive about like this activism with change things, but also doesn't get that like there may also be interracial dynamics that might need to get worked out. So um, that kind of infantilization of the house elves, you know, if that, bec- you know, if that's transformed into a class analysis, is there a class difference there that needs to be interrogated, even as a kind of racialized similarity or history of bondage is a shared experience? There are other experiences under there that that offer deeper layers. Um, so there is a way that that, you know, everything could stay the same and that would illuminate some of the, you know, even tensions and and layers within Black organizing, Black communities, Black diasporic communities, and how all that operates. Hermione also offers us one of the few textual examples, because I've been going back through my head to look for, like, where do we get glimpses of house elves' practices of freedom? What are the moments? And I think, you know, that there's something in Creature's profound belligerence towards our heroes that is that is intriguing in that sense but i also in light of this idea was thinking back to the way the house elves are straight up all totally aware of what hermione is doing with like leave trying to leave clothes around for them and are like a little embarrassed for her and are like oh honey no we'll remove those we won't mention it to you because you are making yourself look very silly right now. And that that is interesting, isn't it? That, yeah, in one version of that, it's just a reinforcement of how selves hate freedom. But another version of it is like, they've kind of got their own thing going on here and they don't need you to come along and infantilize them like this. Introduce them to freedom as though it's something they've never heard of before. Yeah. So we're coming to a close, but... What I'm wondering is, can we get a sense, based on the way that these relationships are playing out in the books, can we get a sense of where Rowling is getting her material? Where is she getting her information about the appreciativeness 
of of creature on receiving the fake locket or where is she getting her information about the 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 reluctance of the Hogwarts house elves to to be to be freed like yeah it, like what are the what are the 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 intertexts there what mm-hmm. is she drawing on yeah cuz it doesn't sound like she's drawing on like revolutionary black literature can you imagine it doesn't seem like that's the archive she visited to build this world i actually just a few minutes ago when we were talking about where the house elves come from i was like oh shit is this going to be one of those things that like rolling wrote a whole silly pottermore article that was like naturally here's the history of the house elves wizards you should just poop on the floor and then disapparate it like is this going to be another one of those and i looked and it does not appear that she has attempted to give them any history but the like harry potter fan wiki talks about like the possible inspirations for them and roots them in relation to like the history of of brownies and like the particularly Irish, English, Scottish history of of fairy stories. So like these fairies that like, you know, will come to your home and do things for you if you leave gifts out for them or like that there's a fair like so there is this this history of sort of stories of of the fairies and and how you you leave stuff out for them so that they'll they'll do you favors and stuff. So so that's the link that they're making is like maybe you leave them a baby, but usually oh, yeah, like a thing. Yeah. usually like a like a bowl of milk. Yeah, so if you're mean to them, they'll take your baby away and replace it with a changeling. But if you're nice to them, they might like make your shoes for you, like the shoemaker's elves. So there is kind of this like this British fairy tale history, which is definitely unintertext for sure, but absolutely does not explain the abolitionist ferocity of Dobby or the emphasis on freedom, which is not, I guess maybe is there kind of a little bit in stories of leprechauns. Like if you catch them, they have to give you stuff. But like, that's not, the house elves are like, they're not random feral elves that have been caught and so have to grant a wish. Yeah, I would not have taken it there. (laughs) Brownies and fairies was not where I would have imagined that would go. Although I can see that. I, but to me, that also is like, like slavery is right there though. Yeah. You know, like, so that's <laughs> like, and I get yeah. that. And I think that's the thing that fandoms do and genre, genre fandoms in particular, of white genre fandoms in particular are like, no, 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 it's not that. It's obviously this other thing. It's like the dragons, not, you know, the concentration camps. And it's like, well, actually- The goblins aren't Jews. Don't be silly. The goblins are just goblins. Yeah. Or we could talk about British Empire and its history of, you know, the sun never sets on the, on the British Empire. We don't even have to go to the Caribbean or, you know, the Americas. Like, the continent is right there as far as thinking about subjugation and servitude and forced labor in homes and forced labor, period. Like, because that's the theme. It's not just domestics. They're not just like, hey, it's not an exchange. You know, they are very much like they're bound to families. They're bound into bondage they are bound and that is a particular genre of like the spell that keeps you in a certain position or a certain place but it's also you know the history is right there and so what is interesting about um about thinking about it as a british text is that you have this really really deep and proud and loud history of what we freed 
the slaves. Like, guys, we freed them. We are the reason why you have the, you know, um, you know, the Somerset case that was, you know, that was you know, that you know stopped slavery from being in uh, Great Britain in the in in the European soil context. It's why you have, you know, like um, abolition act. Like, it's why, like, we ended the slave trade. Then we police the waters. So that the slave ships could not come across, which only worked mostly for the North Atlantic and not for Brazil and Spanish speaking places. But, you know, it's why you have that. There's, that narrative is very, very, very dense. And so I think that is one like the intertext that is um, that is happening here. Um, which is to say Hermione embodies like in her activism sort of embodies that narrative of like, no, 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 like we must do this for the colonized peoples of the world that we have colonized and we'll continue to keep in some subjugated status for our own financial and economic benefit, um, financial and political benefit. Like Hermione kind of embodies that and um, house elves themselves. I think the structure of their lives embodies the other side of that, which is that, yes, we have freed you. What do we do with you? <laughs> we can't make you equal. Like that's the impossibility of equality or imagining full humanity. I think is the piece that is is also some of that that inner text like that. Well, yes, you're freed, but like you know, like these here is all the criteria for citizenship, and oh, funny, you don't meet it, and funny, you probably never will, and funny, like oh, you want your nation to be you know freed of British Empire? Well, eh, I don't know, maybe in another fifty years, right? You know, so I think that they're, I think those are like your economy has for some reason been devastated, so we yeah, don't, don't think that why. you're ready it's for so independence. Weird. Yeah, yeah, we don't so know what strange. happened there, but it's really it's no good. So I think that that's um, I think that that's actually the inner text, um, one of them that Rowling is reaching for. And while I, you know, like most of the kind of interventions I've made have been a kind of a U.S. context, the British Empire is right there. We don't really have to reach to brownies, although I thought you were going to go somewhere really interesting with like Ireland and the U.K. and um, and, uh, and British <laughs> relationship between Northern Ireland, I was like, oh, this is going to get spicy. But <laughs> there is within the UK a history of violent colonization. And I think there's there's some implication that the house elves are like indigenous to the UK. But that doesn't mean that they weren't like violently taken over. I mean, they're they're attached to old wizarding families and old wizarding institutions. So the there was even. a point estates. You're right. There's plenty of history right there in the UK. It's very close. To turn to. Yeah, it There's is so very right close. There. When you see, when you hear, you know, galloping, you just think horses instead of zebra. Like the horses are right there. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you want more of us, which you obviously do, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease, and of course on Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can get all kinds of sweet perks like movie watch-alongs and bloopers and comics made from those bloopers and an absolutely unhinged Q&A series that Marcel and I make. There's just so much bonus content and also importantly, that money goes to making the podcast and paying our producer. So join join the Patreon. Join the join the Patreon. Also, I would like you to read my book. It's called A Sentimental Education. I produced an audiobook for it, which will provide you with multiple hours of my mellifluous voice. So find that wherever fine books are sold. 
Jessica, if people want more of you, where can they go? Well, you can purchase Wicked Flesh or wherever books are sold. I'm also on the socials. I am still on Elon Musk's inter- Twitter, unfortunately, at JMJ AFRX, JMJ Afrix. Um, but I'm also on IG, same name. And also check out the different uh, labs we run. I didn't talk a lot about digital things, but I do, in another world, do DH, Digital Humanities. And that's at lifexcode.org. And you can get clued into all the kinds of things there. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca, along with transcripts. Yay! Plus, our incredible new team member, Gabby, has been creating exciting new website content for us. So if you haven't visited the site in a while, you should go check it out. We have merch! (laughs) Can you believe? Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. To our Witch Please Apprentice, Zoe Mix. And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. Thank you. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've gotta review us if you want to hear marcel taking a look at the five and ten glistening once again with candy canes and silver lanes aglow take a look at the five and ten glistening once again thanks this week to downton jimmy every name was taken so this is it lao liu yu samuela zoa nick mj and lolly loves his lodcasts Thank you all for your reviews. Oh, and in response to your request, Lawi Leo Yu, we are in fact working on a Witch Please Work Cited page coming in 2023. You can consider it our New Year's resolution. We'll be back next episode to conclude our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But until then, later, witches. Hello again, wonderful Harry Potter and Sacred Text listeners. If you've enjoyed today's drop-in episode of Which Please, you should check out their backlog of more than 60 episodes covering a range of theory and topics in relation to the Harry Potter series, and I think a couple of guest spots from yours truly. Like today's show, every episode offers bite-sized academia and the opportunity to critically nerd out. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts or at ohwitchplease.ca. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you in our normal format next week.